Cast thy burden upon the Lord, and he shall sustain thee. He shall never suffer the righteous to be moved. Delight thyself in the Lord, and he shall give thee the desires of thine heart. Commit thy way unto the Lord, trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study this morning, we need to make sure we're in fellowship. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Does it sound to you like this? Is the sound on? No. Half the congregation is saying, no, there is no sound coming out of the speakers. Ken? About half the congregation is saying no sounds coming out of the speakers. The other half isn't sure. So somebody needs to check on that. Okay. While they're checking on that, the rest of us will get in fellowship. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that we can come together this morning as a body of believers to be refreshed by your word, for it is your word that gives strength to our soul as it communicates to us your truth, and it is by means of your truth that we are sanctified, we are matured, and we are made and conformed into the image of our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for the freedom we have in this nation to gather together unhindered by government interference. We pray that that might continue. We realize that there are many forces, many enemies out there who seek to dis- destroy the witness of Christianity and that these uh, various forces are joining together. They are uh, working together in order to uh, shut down the ministry of the local church. Now, Father, we pray that you would just help us to focus and concentrate this morning. We also want to remember Henry Hastings as he's teaching down in Houston this week and finishing up this morning. We pray that you would just uh, guide and direct him in his teaching. Pray that there would be a good uh, good response to his teaching. Pray that he might be faithful to his spiritual gift, Father. Henry's a good friend and a faithful steward of all that you have provided for him. We pray that this might be a profitable time for him. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, Amen. Is that our burglar alarm? Somebody's car alarm? Okay, if you have a car alarm, then go check it. Okay. Is is that the church alarm? Or that's, that's a car alarm? Okay, well, now that we've all gotten well distracted, in light of that burglar alarm going off, maybe we ought to be reminded of a few things. Somebody sent me a firearms refresher course list, and I just thought that should be shared with everyone here, since we're such a such a liberal congregation. Firearms refresher course, first of all, definition, an armed man is a citizen, An unarmed man is a subject. This is not politically correct. If 
we're any visitors here this morning, we're not a politically correct congregation. Second rule, a gun in the hand is better than a cop on the phone. Third, Glock, the Glock, for those of you who don't know, that's a manufacturer of firearm. Glock, the original point-and-click interface. Four, gun control is not about guns. It's about control. Some of these are really good. Fifth, if guns are outlawed, can we use swords? Sixth, if guns cause crime, then pencils cause misspelled words. Seventh, free men do not ask permission to bear arms. Eighth, if you don't know your rights, you don't have any. Ninth, those who trade liberty for security have neither. It's a vital principle. You either have freedom or you have security, but you can't have both at the same time. To give up, to get gain security, you have to always give up liberty. Tenth, the United States Constitution, copyright 1791, all rights reserved. Eleven, what part of shall not be, quote, what part of shall not be infringed do you not understand? Twelfth point, the Second Amendment is in place in case they ignore the others. Thirteen, sixty-four million nine hundred ninety-nine thousand nine hundred eighty-seven firearms owners killed no one yesterday. Fourteen, guns only have two enemies, rust and liberals. Fifteen, no, K-N-O-W, no guns, no peace, K-N-O-W, and safety. No guns, N-O, no guns, no N-O, no peace, nor safety. Sixteen, you don't shoot to kill, you shoot to stay alive. Seventeen, nine-one-one, government-sponsored dial-a-prayer. <laughs> Eighteen, assault is a behavior, not a device. Nineteen, criminals love gun control, it makes their job safer. 20, if guns cause crime, then matches cause arson. 21, only a government that is afraid of its citizens tries to control them. 22, you only have the rights you are willing to fight for. 23, enforce the gun control laws we have, don't make more. Incidentally, we don't enforce half the ones we have. 24, when you remove the people's right to bear arms, you create slaves. 25, the American Revolution would never have happened with gun control. Well, that ought to put our focus on the foundation of liberty we have, which gives us the ability to do what we do. If it weren't for those who owned and utilized firearms, then we would not be here and we would not have this nation. That's foundational. This morning we're covering another foundational doctrine, and that's the doctrine of resurrection. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15. Now, this study dovetails with the study second hour, which is on Christology, technically just the one aspect of Christology, the person of Christ. Second hour, we're studying the subject, who is Jesus? And we're covering a lot of detail 
in that study that is crucial for you to know in this age. There is such an attack on Christianity today, an assault that has intensified over the last hundred years, and if you as an ordinary everyday believer don't know certain facts, basic biblical facts and basic historical facts related to Christianity, then you will be just the victim of whatever's out there. Not that it is necessarily going to sway you, but you will just be ineffective in the battle. I have prepared this week, I've been working on a a detailed book review and analysis of that book, The Da Vinci Code, which is a, a fictional account, a suspense thriller novel that's a little bit fun to read, but embedded in it, is a plot that is based on a Christological heresy that is uh, an assault to try to completely destroy the impact of Christianity. And it's interesting, that as I've, as I've pointed out again and again, these two events happening right now, the Passion movie, which I still haven't seen because I've just been too busy studying and I've got to leave on a trip this afternoon and I'm gone all week and busy, so it just has not been a good time. But uh, that event plus the Da Vinci Code. And last week I got, had to leave to fly down to Houston for a funeral right after church Sunday morning. And so I had it with me, and I sat down, and within two minutes of sitting down, I was asked, what do you think about that book? And I immediately rattled off five egregious just standard secular errors in history that are in the book. And then I said, and not only that, but everything he says related to Christianity is just dead wrong. He makes up more facts, and I gave more And this lady who was sitting there was just floored. But, you know, that's all you need to do is just sit down and be familiar with the book, think of about five secular errors and about um, three or four good facts about Christianity, and then you just segue right into a witnessing opportunity. But you have to be prepared. You have to know something. You have to understand how to utilize these current things like the passion. And and that was the second question after I got through going through that. Well, what do you think of the passion? So if we are prepared, we will have opportunities to to explain the gospel. I had three different opportunities on that trip last Sunday carrying that book in my hand to to witness just because I was carrying the book. And then right now uh, Pam is down in, in Mexico. In fact, she's probably on her way to the airport now. But she's been down there the last four days. Yesterday was her dad's 80th birthday, so all the kids went down for the birthday party. And her dad got six copies of the Da Vinci Code for his birthday. <laughs> So, you know, I'm not making this up, folks. This is the most popular, I think, at this date, 6 million. It came out a year ago in March. 6 million copies have been sold, and it's still in hardback. This is an incredible phenomena. And uh, as much as you may uh, not like the I, the plot structure of this book and the heresy that's there, it, it's not a bad read. And once you realize what it's all about and you read it, uh, not just for the story, but to try to figure out what is said there so that you can pick up a few facts and use uh, in witnessing. You can have a, have a lot of fun with it, and it helps you get past the heresy. Okay, there's two crucial doctrines which everything in Christianity depends. Two crucial doctrines. I've gone over this again and again in the second hour. I'll say it here. The first is the virgin birth. The second is the resurrection. 
If either of these two are, are lost, then our faith is in vain, as Paul says in this chapter. It is meaningless. You see, Christianity, unlike all of the other world religions, is not founded on some philosophy. It's not founded on some moral system. It is founded on a person and what that person did in space-time history. So you can, you can disprove, uh, stuff in Confucius, Confucius' life. You can demonstrate he never existed. You can say that, well, there are certain claims that were made about his biography that are completely false, and it doesn't matter. You can point out that, uh, that things he may have said historically just didn't happen. Doesn't matter. Because Confucianism isn't based on historical reality. There's no necessary connection between what he says and events in history. The same thing is true of, of Buddhism. And you don't have to have uh, historical truth to demonstrate uh, the veracity of Buddhism. If he never existed, if we don't know anything about his life, it doesn't matter because the historicity of Gautama Buddha, whether or not he sat under the Bodhi tree and got his great insights, none of that is relevant to, to Buddhism. It's a philosophy. The same thing with Islam. No matter what you say about about uh, Muhammad, the facts of that are in Islam are not crucial to its its faith. Many, and same thing you could say the same thing with Mormonism. And even though they have a huge amount of history in the Book of Mormon about uh, the lost tribes of Israel being Americans, I mean being the uh, early uh, Native American Indians and Jesus or the apostles coming over here and giving the gospel to whatever tribes there were and establishing this whole civilization, which has been proved patently false. I mean, no historian accepts any of that. It doesn't matter. But if you look at Christianity and you remove the virgin birth or the resurrection, you have no Christian faith because of the virgin virgin birth you have the joining of the eternal deity of the second person of the Trinity with his humanity. And that is foundational to Christianity. John 1.14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So the Word became flesh, that is, the eternal second person of the Trinity takes on humanity, adds humanity so that he becomes the God-man. And because he is God, he is going to be able to go to the cross, and what happens on the cross is going to have eternal value because he possesses absolute perfect righteousness. Because he is fully man... He is going to be able to die as a substitute for everyone else in the human race. Because he is plus R, he has a positive righteousness which can can uh, be imputed to each and every believer. Without the virgin birth, there's no incarnation of God. Jesus is just another man. If he's just another man, then he inherited a sin nature from Adam. He has inherent sin, and he has 
the imputation of Adam's original sin. So the virgin birth is crucial. The resurrection is also crucial because it provides a visible victory over physical death. Now, we know that physical death is not the penalty for sin. That's clear. That is something that is completely lost in the movie The Passion. This is something that you can point out to people. Whether you've seen the movie or not, you can say, if somebody asks you, have you seen it? No, you might say, or if you have seen it. But, you know, one of the things they left out is the reason that Jesus died. Why is it that he went through all of that suffering? And you can take them back to the very beginning when they flash on the screen a quote from, I think it's Isaiah 53, 5, that, that um, talks about the fact that he was pierced for our transgressions, he was, he was wounded for our iniquities. And you can say, now that's, that first verse was never really explained in the movie. But do you want to know what? what the explanation is. You see, one of the things they left out in the movie, they they tried to cover it, but they really didn't do a good job, and that is the darkness that covered the cross from 12 noon to 3 p.m. There was very little darkness. They had a wimpy little thunderstorm pop up on the horizon, and you heard a couple of rumbles of thunder, but yet Christ hung on the cross for three hours, for a total of six hours, and for three of those hours, he went through spiritual agony and suffering that made all of that physical agony and suffering pale by comparison. You think it that was bad. The whippings, the scourgings, the beatings, which which really weren't portrayed as to be as bad as they actually were because it was still recognizable to some degree. And all of that is to help us understand in terms of our limited human frame of reference how serious and how severe the suffering and the pain was when he was judged for our sins because the point of his physical suffering on the cross was was simply as sort of an analogy, a way of helping us understand what was happening between 12 noon and 3 p.m. when God the Father poured out the sins of the world upon Jesus Christ. That's why he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Not because he was becoming punished by uh, Roman, Roman law. So the real impact of the cross... The reason he's on the cross is not because of physical suffering, and it's not to conquer physical death. He is on the cross to pay the penalty for man's sins, but we can't separate the two. I mean, we separate them in terms of thinking about their theology, but Jesus could not have just stood out there on a hill somewhere in Judea and gone through spiritual death. There's a connection, there's a significant connection, significant connection between what happens spiritually and what happens in the physical body. And that is what is so important. Some people don't understand it. And in in some ways in which we've taught, even in doctrinal churches, the importance of the spiritual death of Christ, we almost fall prey to the basic underlying presuppositional trap that was the problem in Corinth. And that is by putting too much of an emphasis on the spirit where we diminish the significance of the body and matter. 
And you see, this is this goes all the way back to Greek thought. We are so Greek in our thinking. It is it is the, still the biggest flaw of Western civilization in terms of identifying certain ideas present in what we might identify as cosmic thinking, Western Civ. Okay, there ought to be a course on that. I would love to do that in a college setting sometime is go through a history of like western civilization from the viewpoint of identifying the human viewpoint cosmic thinking that identifies each nation each culture and how it develops down through the centuries and how it shapes the way people think in terms of their hostility their reaction and their distortion of the word of god we have to understand these things. And what came out of Greek thought, thanks to Plato, and modern philosophers say that really everything since Plato is simply a footnote to Plato, but according to Plato, and these were ideas he really de- developed in, in a much more sophisticated manner than had been before, but these ideas were prevalent in Greek thought Even at his time, he just took it and systematized these ideas and took it to a new level. And there is the idea that all of reality is composed of two elements. On the one hand, you have matter. That is, you have the physical, the physical world. And then there is the world of spirit. This is the immaterial world. Uh, This is also the world of ideas. Ideas, values, universals. And in Greek philosophy, what was really important was what was happening up here in the realm of ideas, in the realm of values, in the realm of material. That matter was somehow less than perfect. It is, it is tainted. Let's use an example here. And you're all familiar with my excellent abilities at drawing. But let's take an equilateral triangle. And just for the sake of utilizing our imaginations this morning, and we're going to say that's a perfect equilateral triangle. We look at that, and if I had had the time, I would have taken a straight edge, and I would have drawn that out or perhaps drawn it on the computer. And we could look at it and say, well, that's just a perfect triangle. But then you take it and you take that perfect triangle you've drawn on your computer and you you bump it from 100% to 500%. Now you're able to look at all the little pixels on the lines and you realize those aren't straight lines after all. And wait a minute, when it was at 100%, it looked like the lines actually touched, but now that you've blown it up to to 500% or 1,500%, you realize the lines don't actually touch. It's not perfect. And that in this world, no matter how hard you try, no matter how meticulous you are, no matter how uh, how excellent your materials are, which you use to draw that triangle, you can't draw a perfect triangle. It is impossible. Ah, that's the problem, you see, for, for the Greeks realize this, and so matter itself is imperfect. It is inherently flawed. Therefore, you have a real problem with matter. So only in this area, the upper story, do you have any level of, 
of perfection. And so what this developed was the idea that in some sense, matter or the physical material world being inherently flawed is in some sense less than perfect, less than ideal, less than good, and in its more extreme form, matter is equated with evil and the spirit is equated with good. Now, what's the implication of this kind of thinking? The implication is if you have a physical body, PB out here, if you have a physical body, because it's physical, it is inherently less good. It's just not that great, folks. Now, you may look in the mirror and agree with that, but, but we're talking about in principle here. That your that the human physical body just isn't that much valuable. The real value is up here in the realm of the spirit. That's where the real significance is. And so this led to the idea of diminishing the importance of the physical body, or in some cases, some extreme cases with some groups, the body is just evil. No matter what you do, you can't escape evil, so you might as well eat, drink, and be merry. And that, the whole idea of Epicureanism is you might as well let the, the physical body do what the physical body does and just enjoy because actually that has nothing to do with what goes on up with the immaterial part they don't touch. Another way this manifested itself is what we studied in First John. There was a problem in the late first century and became a major problem into the second century, and that is in uh, something that was called docetism. D-O-C-E-T-I-S-M, from the Greek verb dokeo, D-O-K-E-O. And in dokeo, the idea of something appears or seems to be. And so in docetism, you had the idea that Jesus, or the second person of the Trinity, did not take on real human flesh because if he's up here in the realm of the perfect, then if he touches anything down here, he will be automatically flawed by that. He will, he will be diminished by that. So Jesus really could not have been truly human. And so there was a rejection in Gnosticism and Docetism of the true humanity of Jesus because this would uh, reduce him to a physically flawed person just by virtue of being united with the physical. Now, there's no concept of a sin nature in their thinking. It is just physical qua physical is sinful. Now, that's a distortion of what the Scripture teaches. The Scripture teaches that God created matter as good. God created the human body as good. There's no inherent flaw in it. It is only after Adam sins that there is a physical dimension to sin. There is a sin nature in the genetic composition of man. And because of that, there is a flaw, but that is going to be dealt with. And that's part of what happens in the doctrine of the resurrection is to deal with the physical consequences of sin. Not, And the spiritual death of Christ deals with the penalty. So we go back to a basic fundamental distinction that I have emphasized numerous times is that if you look at Genesis 2.17, there was a penalty for sin. And that penalty was death. But it was not physical death. Physical death is not the penalty for sin. 
God told Adam, in the day that you eat of the fruit, you will surely die. It was an emphatic statement using a cow perfect verb plus a cow infinitive absolute, indicating the absolute certainty of instantaneous death at the moment of eating. But that didn't happen. He didn't die for another 930 years. And in fact, physical death, PB, physical death, that's not peanut butter, just want to know if anybody was listening this morning. Physical death is, is not mentioned until the, about the third or fourth paragraph of the outline of the curse in Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, Adam is told that from dust you came and to dust you will return. That is the first mention of physical death, but there's a number of other consequences that precede that. The serpent is now going to crawl on its belly and crawl on its guts. The woman is going to have a have a desire to control the man. The man's going to have a desire to rule the woman. The woman is going to have pain in in labor. The man is now going to toil in the soil and he is going to earn a living through the sweat of his brow so that responsibility now becomes onerous on the man. He had responsibility and he was to labor before the fall, but there was nothing laborious about it. He was in a perfect environment. Now there is a, there is a battle between man and, and nature. So we can't separate the physical from the spiritual like the Greeks did. They created this dichotomy between the spiritual and the physical. And so Christ is going to deal with both the the spiritual penalty and the physical consequences on the cross. And he, he doesn't separate the two because ultimately there is no real separation. See, we'll, we'll see this as we go through our study of the background here, and this is one of the reasons the Greeks had trouble with physical resurrection, is if the physical body isn't important, then why does it need to be resurrected? And so they rejected offhand in an a priori presuppositional manner. A priori means before you get the facts. You know, you've run into that, talking to people, well, my mind's made up, don't confuse me with the facts. That's an a priori decision. I'm going to make the decisions prior to a priori, uh, from the beginning. I'm going to make the decision first, listen to the facts later, but then it really doesn't matter because I'm already convinced. So we all, all know people like that, and uh, they are sad because they have no objectivity. Even in a political environment like the one in which we're in today, you ought to listen to the opposing candidates just to find out what they say. You know, they might have a good idea here or there. You know, a stopped watch is right twice a day. And so every now and then, even a Democrat can come up with a good idea. And every now and then, Republicans come up with really lousy ideas. So you, you don't want to just make a decision ahead of time that you're not going to listen to somebody. That reveals a lack of objectivity in your soul. And you, as a believer with doctrine, should have objectivity in your soul so that you could listen to just about any position and evaluate it without uh, getting too out of fellowship. Now, we all know there are times when some of these idiots get on the idiotes. Let me, I love that Greek word we learned from 
1 Corinthians 14. Some of these idiotes get on there, and you want to take your shoe off and throw it through the screen. And that's a time when perhaps you've lost your objectivity because you're out of fellowship, and it's better to go watch MASH or something. So we've seen that there are two key important doctrines on which Christianity hangs. First is the virgin birth, John 1.14. The second is the resurrection. And it is in the resurrection that Jesus Christ conquers the greatest consequence of sin. See, the sin penalty is spiritual death. The greatest consequence of that, the most obvious consequence of that in our life, is physical death. And that is conquered, and it is also, the resurrection by conquering physical death is also a sign of God's acceptance of Christ's spiritual sacrifice on the cross and God the Father validating Christ's work of salvation. This is emphasized in 1 Corinthians 15, 55 to 57. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. His victory over spiritual, over physical death in the resurrection is the first fruits, and it is to indicate to us that we also will have victory over physical death. Now, that does not mean you won't die physically. That Jesus died physically, and then he was resurrected. In most of our cases, we will die physically unless the Lord comes back. And the Lord may or may not come back. Uh, I expect him to in my lifetime, but so did Paul, and so have hundreds or thousands of other believers. So we better live as if he is not coming back, but... Uh, in, in, in terms of planning, but in terms of living the spiritual life, we better live as if he's coming back tomorrow, because if he does come back tomorrow, we want to be ready. We don't want to be taken by surprise. So the doctrine of the resurrection is important because it validates, it is a sign of God's validation of Christ's spiritual substitutionary death on the cross, and it conquers physical death. Now I want to go through several several points by way of introduction to the importance of resurrection. There are seven points. I felt like being a good dispensational dispensationalist today, so I have two introductory sections and each has seven points. For those of you who don't know, dispensationalists were always putting everything in three points or seven points or fourteen points or something like that. So first point. The physical human body is vitally important and significant as the home for the soul and is is necessary to the soul, and it is part of the image of God, which in the Latin is referred to as the imago dei. I'll write that up on the board for you. Imago dei. The image of God. The physical human body is vitally important and significant as the home for the soul, but is also necessary to the soul and part of the imago dei. The second point goes to the scripture. 
So the physical body is important. The Bible never looks at the physical body as something that is secondary or unnecessary to the soul. The one thing we'll see as we go through these passages is that the soul, your soul, never operates apart from some kind of body. There's never this this uh, soul that just kind of hangs out there on its own in some sort of amorphous space waiting for that resurrection body. The soul is is created to have a connection with some sort of body, so we can't uh, diminish its significance. In Genesis one twenty six, this is point number two, the key scriptures, Genesis one twenty six to twenty eight and Genesis two seven. Genesis one twenty six, then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God then, in verse 27, created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So what we see here is that the image of God is related to the soul because the emphasis here is on male and female indicates external differences, but it also indicates soul differences. Men have souls oriented one way. Women have souls a a different way. And together they are representatives of God as the image of God. And they are to rule, and part of ruling involves this physical dimension. There's a physical world they rule over, and that involves them being present in a physical sense, not in an immaterial sense. And then Genesis 2-7, the emphasis on the body, Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. So we see the two elements, the breath of life, meaning the immaterial part of man, and man becoming a living being. Now, the word for life there is a Hebrew plural, but it is a plural of emphasis. It does not mean breath of lives. Uh, that has, Some have tried to make it work that way. But that would imply that you have two lives and you lose one at spiritual death. The soul and spirit are intricately connected, and it's one life. And when you sin, you lose part of that, and you become spiritually dead. But it is not two lives. You can't make the Hebrews say that. Uh, That's just forcing too much on on the vocabulary. And man became a living being. So that is singular. So you can't uh, justify breath of lives from this particular passage. So these passages indicate the importance of the immaterial part of man, but it has to operate within a physical body. Man is biological life, but he can't be simply reduced to uh, protoplasm, protein, blood, and sinew. There's more to it. You can't just divorce the body, completely separate the body from the soul. They are intricately and necessarily connected. Third point. When God was at this point, 
And it was probably in Genesis 1, 26 to 28 and Genesis 2, 7. It was probably the pre-incarnate Christ when God, the Son, was messing around in the mud, in the dust. He was thinking about the Father's design. design. Remember, God the Father is the architect of creation and is God the Son who is the contractor, the one who puts it all together, and God the Holy Spirit was also involved. And as the sun is messing around there in the mud, he's got that divine blueprint in front of him for the human body, but he's also thinking in terms of the purpose of God. When God the Son is there with just dragging his finger around in the mud and just building up those little mud balls he's going to mash together to make that body, what he is thinking about is that he himself is going to become incarnated into that body that he is making. Therefore, the design of that body is not merely pragmatic. It is not happenstance. It didn't come along as a product of trial and error through the various stages of evolution, but it is a body that was specifically designed so that when the second person of the Trinity uh, was incarnated into that body, that body would allow God to give us the highest possible expression of who and what he is. I mean, if it could have been done in another way, he would have done it another way. If he, we could get a better idea of who God is by having three arms or eyes in the back of our head or four legs, then God would have done that. If, if we only needed one leg or one eye or a head at some other place on the body, then that would have happened. In other words, the body's designed the way it is so that when everything is said and done, when God reduces himself to this finite body, this is the highest and possible expression uh, of, of that finiteness. Hebrews 10.5 says, Therefore, when he says, come, when he comes into the world, he says, this is Jesus Christ in his deity speaking to the Father, sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In his deity, he is expressing his thanks to God the Father in reference to the physical body that has been prepared for him. Now, he's got to be thinking this in his deity, because in his humanity, he still has to go through the process of vocabulary acquisition and language learning, and that's not going to come about for a while. So Hebrews 10.5 would be an expression of the deity, the, the gratitude of the deity of the second person of the Trinity as he is entering into his new uh, human body. But he emphasis here is on this is a body you have prepared for me. And that would involve not only the fact that it is genetically related to, to David and to Abraham, but in the very structure of the human body. Fourth point, we have to realize in Scripture that the human soul never exists independently of a body. It never exists independently of a body. You don't have the human soul existing independently of that original home for Adam. 
God first creates the physical body, and then he breathed into it. You don't have this pre-incarnate soul. That was another idea that came out of Platonism, the idea of pre-existence, that souls exist before they're put in the body. There's just a whole bunch of little souls floating around in this ideal world of Platonism, just waiting for somebody to come along, and then they pop into these bodies, and they've got some sort of pre-existent life. That is a view that is consistent with a view of reincarnation. You know, reincarnation has nothing to do with resurrection. In reincarnation, you just get recycled over and over again down through history until finally you lose your personal identity. Uh, there's nothing more devastating, more depressing, more discouraging than understanding the doctrine of reincarnation. And Hindus and Eastern mystics have done an incredible job of selling a bill of goods to the American consumer because when American consumers are sold the concept of of reincarnation, it never is packaged in the fact that if you don't have the right karma and you die, then you're going to come back as a stink bug next week. You know, or you're going to come back as a as as a skunk next next week, or you're just going to be some some amoeba growing in some algae at the bottom of some pond, uh, or you're going to be a frog, whatever it is. You know, in in pure Hinduism, if you don't have the right karma, or you blow it in this life, you don't just come back. You know, lower on the social scale. You you come back low, lower on the chain of being. You're down there as a, as a one or two cell piece of protoplasm for a while. So it is extremely negative, and uh, it, it it it's just one of the most depressing doctrines you could ever run across. So the idea of the soul existing in some sort of independent state again comes out of Greek thought. And in Greek thought, the physical body becomes a limiting prison to the soul. Before the soul had a body, it's free. It can, it's just out there free-floating through whatever, but it's free. Now it's in prison. It's in a body. It's limited to that body. So being in a body is somewhat of a negative thing in Greek thought. But the Scripture teaches that the soul never exists independently of a body. Point number five, after death, there, it's clear from Scripture there is some sort of interim body. Now, I want to give you two arguments for this. There's some sort of interim temporary body that is similar to the resurrection body. Now, let's start off with the case of Jesus Christ, and here we are dealing with the resurrection body. When they took the physical dead body of the Lord Jesus Christ off the cross and they wrapped him up in the grave clothes with all of the, uh, all of the, the, the incense and spices and everything that were, were with the body and they put that in the grave, when he rose from the dead at the instant of, of resurrection, that body that he had had before was what was rejuvenated, was what was renovated into this new resurrection body so that the grave clothes collapsed right where they were and the, the, the molecules and the, and the cell structure that had made up the, 
the uh, human body of our Lord was what was transformed into a physical body. Now, that has some interesting implications, I think, you know, but none of which probably makes any sense. I mean, just think about this. If every part that he had is is transformed into this new body, what's going to happen if you die and you give somebody your heart in a heart transplant and then the rapture occurs? Or, or if you give your, your, your eyeballs or cornea or liver, or, does that mean that God's going to take that out? I don't know. But it's something fun to speculate on. Okay. But Jesus doesn't go through this kind of non-body type of thing. He has gets that resurrection, and there seems to be some sort of immaterial body because when he goes to uh, Tartarus, to Sheol, and makes an announcement, think about this. He makes that victorious proclamation. How can you make a proclamation without a voice? How can you make a proclamation without a mouth? You can't. Well, let me see. He just thought it and they understood it. That's not what it says. It doesn't say he went to Tartarus and gave a thought. It said he made a proclamation. So by the literal sense of the word, there has to, that implies a mouth. But for a more precise understanding, turn to Luke 16. Luke 16 is the only clear place in Scripture, where we see some sort of interim body. No, I can think of another one. In in First Samuel, in First Samuel, I'll give you the chapter in just a minute. While you're looking up Luke 16, in First Samuel, when De, uh, Saul goes to the witch of Endor and wants her to uh, to contact Samuel, that when she she does because and she's surprised by that because she was just a fraud like any uh, necromancer is, unless they've got real demon possession, uh, when, when he goes to, to the witch at Endor and she calls up uh, Samuel in 1 Samuel chapter 28, Samuel appears in a recognizable human body, but it's not a resurrection body and it's not his original body. But he has a body. And you see the same kind of thing in Luke chapter 16. In Luke chapter 16, we have the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Now, some people want to call this a parable. But a parable is a literary form. It's a story. And certain stories have different characteristics. You know the difference. You pick up a novel and you read it. Even if, if, even if somebody took the cover off of a paperback book and you didn't have any blurb telling you what it was about and you just started with chapter one, I bet most of you within the first two paragraphs could identify whether it was a science fiction novel, whether it was a romance novel, whether it was a murder mystery or whether it was some kind of high-tech thriller. I mean, those are the basic different forms of popular literature. And and you can spot that right off the bat because we know what the form is. And one of the things that characterizes a parable is the people don't have names. You know, it's just a story. It's a fictional story that is designed to represent a universal principle. So in a parable, the individuals are not named. It's like the the uh, parable of the prodigal son. 
He doesn't have a name. The brother doesn't have a name. The father doesn't have a name. They're not real people. But what do you note about the story here in Luke 16, 19? There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. Ah, might be a parable. He doesn't have a name. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus. Verse 20, ah, can't be a parable. Lazarus has a name. He's a person. He's flesh and blood, space-time individual. We're talking about one specific individual. There was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. So it was that the beggar died, verse 22, and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. So this is where the dead go. Now, it's interesting, carry implies they're carrying something, not just some sort of amorphous, immaterial soul. That they're carrying something, carried by the by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died, and he was buried. And being in torments in Hades, what does he do? He lifts up his eyes. Well, I thought you said he was dead. Yeah, he's dead. His human physical body's back there in the grave. But apparently, there is an interim body that allows the soul to interact with whatever's around it. Because think about it: the soul can't see. The soul can't hear. The soul can't touch. The soul can't do anything by itself. The soul has to have a body through which it transmits and receives data. Without a body of some kind, it's deaf, dumb, and blind and has no sensation whatsoever. So he's dead, but he has eyes. He looks at Abraham afar off, and he cried out and said, so he has speaking ability. He has vocal cords. He has a mouth. He says, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may what? Dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. So you see, there just can't be this sort of free-floating uh, gas light over there. He has a finger, and la- uh, 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 the rich man has a tongue. Dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. See, he can cool because he's hot. In other words, there's physical sensation of hot and cold. Besides all that, and he goes on and says, uh, Abraham says, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and you are tormented. Beside all this, between us there is a great gulf fixed, so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Well, that's the point that I am making. And one other point that Jesus makes here is that at the end of this, uh, the, the rich man begs Abraham, send him, well, let him be resurrected. Let him go back and tell my five brothers that he may testify so that they don't come to this place of torment. And Abraham said to them, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. Now, that's profound because what that is saying is that, you know, we want to see, people want to see signs of of, of the truth of Scripture. Show me a miracle. If I could just see Jesus walk on the water, then I would believe. If I could just have been there when when the waters of the Red Sea parted, then I would believe. 
What the Bible says is if you're not willing to believe the witness of the Scripture, there is no empirical or rational evidence powerful enough to convince you of the truth because of an a priori decision to reject the truth and to reject God, suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, Romans 1, 18 to 20. But the point of Luke 16 is that There is clearly an interim body that has sensation and through which the soul can communicate. Point number six, at the rapture of the church, all church-age believers receive their resurrection bodies. At the rapture of the church, all church-age believers receive their resurrection bodies. And what we learn from this is that If you were to die today, you would receive an interim body. You would be absent from the body, face-to-face with the Lord, but you don't have a resurrection body. Whatever its composition is, it is different from that resurrection body, and the resurrection body is going to be composed of elements of your current body. Now, I know you're sitting there going, well, wait a minute, there's some elements of my current body I don't want. Well, we've got to trust the Lord on that one. But that's why the graves open and the sea gives up its dead. This is physical. It's not just, okay, we're going to pull all the souls together. But there is going to be, on the model of Jesus' resurrection, there's going to be an emptying of the grave. And so some people say, well, what about, what about those who were, who were uh, cremated and their ashes are scattered? Well, I think the Lord can handle that. And I think that if... You get cremated, and you have your ashes scattered over the Pacific Ocean, that there's probably not more of a challenge in that for God than probably somebody who died 2,000 years ago, and they were buried somewhere around uh, uh, downtown Manhattan, and over the years there's been so much building and scattering, and their ashes are probably scattered all over the place too. Are there whatever their remains are? So the Lord's able to handle all of that because He's omnipotent. So don't don't worry about it. But it's also interesting that in the history of Christianity, now I'm not telling you what to do here, but I am giving you something to think about. And I think about this: in the history of Christianity, Christians from the beginning did not cremate the body. Cremation historically comes out of Hinduism where the body isn't physically important. But in Christianity, they always viewed the body as physically important, and it was, and Christians always, the early church always had physical bodily burial. Now, they did that because of the hope of the resurrection of the body. Now, that's not a mandate from Scripture. That was just a way the early church, their reasoning behind physical uh, bodily burial as opposed to cremation, but it's it's something to think about. Seventh point, there are two basic resurrections spoken of in Scripture. Two resurrections spoken of in Scripture. John five, twenty four to twenty nine, Daniel twelve two, and Revelation twenty verse six and thirteen. John five, twenty four to twenty nine. Daniel 12, 2, Revelation 20, verse 6 and 13. 1 Corinthians 15, 22 tells us that resurrection occurs every man in his own order, and the Greek word there translated order is the Greek word tagma. Looks like this. Tagma. T-A-G-M-A. This is a military word 
for order, for a division of a military unit, what we may call a company or a battalion. And so each one is in ranks in a certain order. So there are actually uh, five segments in the first resurrection. doesn't mean they all happen at the same time. The first segment of the resurrection is the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the first fruits of resurrection. Romans 1.4, 1 Thessalonians 1.10, and 1 Corinthians 15.20. The second company in the first uh, resurrection is the church, all church-age believers, 1 Thessalonians 4.13 through 18, and 1 Corinthians 15.51 to 57. The third company of those in the first resurrection are the Old Testament saints plus tribulation martyrs, and they are raised at the end of the tribulation. This is the third company in the first resurrection. Old Testament saints plus tribulation martyrs, Daniel 12:13, Isaiah 26, 19 and 20, Revelation 20, verse 4, and Matthew 24, 31. These are Old Testament saints plus tribulation martyrs. Daniel 12, 13, Isaiah 26, 19 and 20, Revelation 20, verse 4, Matthew 24, 31. And the fifth group in the first resurrection are the two servants of the Lord. Well, this is, yeah, this is the fourth. I've got my numbers backwards here. The fourth group. First group is Jesus Christ. Second group is the church. Third group is the tribulation saints and Old Testament saints. Fourth group, the two servants of the Lord, the two prophets who are martyred halfway through the tribulation and are resurrected three and a half days later for all the world to see. And then the fifth group is comprised of all millennium saints and those uh, who are alive after the tribulation who go into the millennial kingdom and then receive their resurrection bodies at the end of the millennium. So five groups in the first resurrection. The second resurrection is all unbelievers since the beginning of time. All unbelievers since the beginning of time are raised from the dead at, at the time of the great white throne judgment at the end of the tribulation, Revelation 20, 12 through 15, and Matthew 25:41, Revelation 20:12 through 15, and Matthew 25:41. So the only way to guarantee you're not in that second resurrection is to put your faith alone in Christ alone, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for the opportunity to study your Word this morning, to go through this uh, introduction to the doctrine of resurrection, and to see its importance. Father, we pray that all here would be in that first resurrection. The way to guarantee that is simply by faith alone in Christ alone. It is not a matter of reforming your life. It's not a matter of joining a church. It's not a matter of convincing God you're going to do better. It has nothing to do with who you are, but everything to do with who Jesus Christ is and what he did at the cross. This is your opportunity to determine your eternal destiny. Right now, right where you sit, all you need to do is determine that you trust in Jesus as your Savior. Whatever you're trusting in doesn't work. Only Jesus can save. Jesus paid the penalty for your sins, and salvation is by simply trusting, receiving that salvation, believing in him. Scripture says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Now, Father, we pray that you would challenge us with a 
understanding of what we've studied this morning, the implications for our own Christian life and spiritual growth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.